Welcome to Rocking Your Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and with me today is the author of the best book that I've read in 2023. No, it really is brilliant. Sacred Foundations, Professor Anna Gujamea Busa. She is Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Okay, question. What led to state formation in Europe? Now, the conventional wisdom is that rulers raise taxes to fund their wars. Why is that wrong? Um, it's not. The, it's definitely the case that rulers raise taxes to fund wars. It's just that that's not where the state comes from. So all the institutions that we associate with the state, whether taxation or parliaments, courts, um, the whole fiscal apparatus, all predates this kind of extensive fundraising for warfare. And in fact, we can trace it back to the papal innovations of the 11th and 12th centuries, where basically all of these institutions start to come online, first in the Catholic Church and then in secular courts. Okay, so I want you to un you do an amazing job in the in the in the book of showing why war was not a necessary nor a sufficient condition uh, for state making. Now, and I also think that the a unique feature, and I had not realized this before, a unique feature of medieval Europe and different from all other empires is that there was a a growing rivalry between church and state. How did that develop? Because it wasn't always like that. That's right. So basically, until the 11th century, the church is largely protected by and in many ways controlled by secular authorities. The Holy Roman Emperor names popes and bishops, um, various local no nobles own churches and monasteries, um, they name their own clergy and so on. And it's not until the 11th century that a, reformist, a series of reformist popes basically wants to gain autonomy from this overweening control. Um, and they do that through what's known as the investiture conflict, where they basically assert and then establish their autonomy. Um, the Holy Roman Empire isn't particularly pleased by this. It keeps having territorial ambitions and wanting to make um, incursions onto papal territory. And so the popes react by basically actually pursuing a rivalry with the Holy Roman Empire and any other ruler who looks to be threatening their interests. Yeah, because I would say for listeners, like this really is a different from the Byzantine Empire, which you mentioned in the conclusion, where there's a much greater fusion. And also, of course, the Ottoman Empire, like Amit Kuru's book on the Ulema State Alliance, where leader rulers legit, uh, you know, prop up financially their madrasas and the ulema would then legitimize their leaders. So why do you think the, the papacy wanted to break apart? Why not sort of just go along with it? So, you know, I think the papacy certainly wanted to influence rulers and kings. It certainly wanted to exert a moral and political influence, but it wanted its own organizational autonomy. So the pope basically wants to sit at the apex of his own hierarchy rather than to be subordinated to secular authority. And there are both theological reasons to do this, the whole doctrine of the two swords, of separate spheres, of secular and the holy. Um, and there are also very practical political reasons for it. You know, the Pope simply doesn't want to be under the thumb of an emperor and have him benefit financially and benefit politically from controlling the church. Do you think there were any financial reasons unique to Western Europe that made that possible? I was just wondering, you know, why didn't that happen in the Ottoman Empire? Why didn't the ulemas break apart and become financially independent in the way the papacy did? I think it has quite a bit to do with the administrative structure of the church. So right. it's divided into bishoprics that are all over Europe. And those bishoprics come with their own offices, their own wealth, their own land, their own seats. And so the big issue during the investiture conflict and beyond is who gets to control that wealth, those resources, and that human capital. 
Um, and that's part of the reason why the church, once it establishes control over that, is able to break free, because it now has all these resources at its disposal with which to maintain its autonomy and to basically keep the secular rulers in line if they attempt to go after the church. That's a great point about organizational structure. I wonder if, for example, Islam was too decentralized. So you have waqfs, for example, right, right. but you don't have a higher power having necessarily having control over those basically family forms of investment vehicles. That's so, right. may, so maybe the church has, yay, you know, hierarchical administrative structure enables them to, you know, collect rents and resources. That's right. No, it certainly does. I mean, and the other thing that it does is to basically allows the church to establish greater control over the bishoprics. So what happens is that every year, um, or no, no, scratch that. Um, so every bishop, in order to vest, be vested in his office, has to travel to Rome and officially receive sort of the insignia of office from the Pope before traveling all the way back and you know, establishing his uh, his office. And so there's already a lot of sort of back and forth, which allows the church to really sort of control what those, what happens to those resources. The control isn't perfect, obviously. There's a lot of stuff that goes on on the ground. Popes you know, can establish certain rules, but bishops interpret them of their, on their own. Um, there's you know, a lot of uh, clerical marriage that goes on, a lot of children that are born to priests. All this stuff is going on on the ground, um, and bishops basically reinterpret laws as they see fit. But nonetheless, the Pope exerts considerable control over his church, basically by the end of the 11th century, by beginning of the 12th. Okay, brilliant. I'm with you. Next question. Why do you think there was a stronger rivalry between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire compared to, say, the Netherlands, Sweden and England? They were simply further away. So they didn't pose as much of a threat. The Holy Roman Empire at its peak, basically, on one hand, comes across the Alps and controls bits of Italy, northern Italy, perilously close to the papal states. And on the other hand, you know, it, it comes up from below and basically controls the kingdom of Sicily, um, again, perilously close to the papal states. Um, England, you know, Sweden, all the, the Netherlands were all safely far away um, and they had, they had no territorial designs on the papacy. So they weren't nearly the target that the Holy Roman Empire was. OK, I'm with you. Now, what were the consequences of the papacy's rivalry with Italy and Germany? How, how, how did that shape territorial fragmentation, for example? So the popes basically make it very clear that they're not going to stand for territorial incursion. And what they do is through a series of very secular weapons, um, alliances and coalitions, you know, support of secular depositions and even political crusades basically target rulers that they see as wayward, that they see as, you know, attempting to reestablish a hegemony. And the result of this is, on the one hand, that the Holy Roman Empire in both its Italian and German territories is the key target of the church. Um, it also means that most of the resources of the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor go to these territorial ambitions. And as he's you know, launching yet another or fighting yet against yet another assault, um, he fails to centralize power within the Holy Roman Empire. He makes all kinds of side deals with cities and nobles, gives them all kinds of concessions in order to basically buy their support for his efforts. But that means that there's a great leakage of power from the from the center to these regions. And by the time that the emperors sort of turn around and you know in the 14th century start to want to reestablish central control, it's too late. The cities and the nobles have gotten so much power that they've basically established their own autonomous principalities and you know mini kingdoms all over the place, making it impossible for the Holy Roman Emperor to reestablish central control. And so as a result. That entire region stays fragmented until the 19th century yes. um, as a result of these earlier church efforts. 
And even when the church weakens, these nobles and these cities, having already gained their power, simply hold on to it and maintain this fragmentation. So you think it's the, the rivalry with the papacy that is the main reason why Germany and Italy remain fragmented for so long? Yes. And, you know, were the Bellicist logic be correct, what we should see is a sort of early modern warfare winnowing out all these tiny statelets into a few big ones. But that doesn't happen. And the process of unification in both Italy and in Germany is an explicitly political one that takes place in the 19th century, certainly not you know, long after the early modern era. Okay, now question. So your book argues, the main argument of the book is that leaders copied the church institutions in order to strengthen their authority. Do you think we see any differences in state formation between countries that were more or less threatened by the church? Yes. So, and, and here I want to be clear, it's not as if, you know, the king's copy wholesale templates from the church. It's what really happens is there are a lot of bishops who serve as both royal administrators and papal emissaries, a lot of legal experts, a lot of clerks who all make their way from the Vatican and from Italy all, all across Europe. And they really transmit these administrative templates. But what happens is that those countries where, you know, as in the case of the Holy Roman Empire, they're so fragmented, can't adopt these templates, right? There's, there's no central court where these templates can be adopted and then transmitted. And so individual princes and cities might adopt some of these templates, as happens in Italy, mm. but there's no wholesale adaptation. Um, whereas in places like France or in Spain, we see much more of sort of, you know, a... Um, an extensive copying of church templates simply because those are by this point far more unified um, than they are in the Holy Roman Empire. Okay, so where there is, where there is greater fragmentation, we don't see the large-scale copying. That's right. But, right. Okay, I'm with you. Now, question, how did the church-state rivalry and imitation uh, affect human capital formation? You try ah. to discuss universities, and I thought that yes. was so fascinating. So universities, it's, it's, it's an, it is a fascinating story. So during the investiture conflict, the sort of first you know, signal episode of conflict between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire, one of the weapons that the church starts to use is the law, right? And you know, there's a rediscovery of Roman law co codices that are basically, you know, in some monastery, they're rediscovered by the ten, by roughly the middle of the 11th century. They are rediscovered, and they're basically now seen as the, the legitimate form of the law. Um, shortly after, in the 1140s, canon law is similarly sort of you know, systematized and presented as a codex. And what basically happens is that the law starts being used as a weapon in this rivalry. Popes basically assert that you know they have arguments from Roman law on their side. They sort of show that this is you know in fact how. Um, how the conflict got to be resolved, and so on. And what basically happens is that in response to the rediscovery of Roman law and this new demand for legal experts, you have the founding of law schools. And so, you know, the first law school, the first university, the University of Bologna, um, is founded in 1088 at the height of the investiture conflict. And what happens is there are subsequent universities that are founded, all of whom teach law, both canon and Roman, and popes and emperors basically vie to charter these universities. They're mostly spontaneously founded. It's not as if they're actually organizing these universities, but they give them charters and protection um, because they want to take advantage of this legal expertise that's flowing out of these universities. And so as a result of this conflict between the popes and the emperors, we see A, the rise of law as a way to adjudicate disputes, and B, the rise of universities and the enormous human capital that they represent. And again, this happens long, long before the early modern period. It happens long before the Protestant Reformation. This early flowering of human capital um, basically starts in the late 11th century. 
So a really crucial argument of the book is that, you know, before state formation, it was the papacy that had all this wealth. The papacy had that had all this human capital. The papacy that had all these systems of administration in order to run that hierarchical organization. And then secular rulers thought, you know, hey, that's a nice idea. Or the bishops themselves adopted it, right? Another fascinating point that you made that really, really rocked my prize was about the commune revolution. So Joe Henrik has a wonderful book on weird societies, and he argues that the Catholic, and he, and he emphasizes the Catholic Church, but through a very, very different mechanism. His argument is from 300 AD to 1300, the Catholic Church becomes very draconian, interferes in people's marriages, bans cousin marriages, and then you see nuclear family formation and the emergence of this universalist morality. And because of that, people in cities organize together through self-government. Yours is very different. You're saying, yes, the Catholic Church was important, but through another mechanism. Tell me how you think the Catholic Church led to the Commune Revolution. Well, largely as part of this rivalry, right? What basically happens is that as the Holy Roman Empire pulls out, out of northern Italy, for example, it leaves behind a power vacuum. And that power vacuum is filled by increasingly powerful local cities um, with councils and sort of, you know, autonomy and with self-governance. And, you know, I think if the sort of broader argument about the family marriage program that the church uh, puts forth would be responsible for the founding of communes, we should see them everywhere, right? And instead, we only see them in the areas of the Holy Roman Empire, where there's basically a power vacuum. So we see free cities within Germany, and we see communes in Northern Italy. We don't really see them in England, in Spain, or any place else, even though had the family marriage program that the church instills been responsible for the founding of communes, we should see them everywhere. And this is something you test empirically, like you test both the formation of universities and also the uh, commune revolution empirically. That's right. Do you want to tell the listeners about the, those, you know, quantitative methods that you oh, use? Oh, good grief. No, your book is really tremendous in that it's this really rich historical qualitative account and you've got the, you know, a lot of fancy numbers. There, there are a lot of fancy numbers. It's a, it was an enormous data set um, that I put together with a team of extremely capable research assistants. Um, and it basically traces, you know, monasteries, bishoprics, universities, excommunications, papal conflicts, secular conflict, and so on. Um, and using the data set and, you know, some simple statistical techniques, we're able to establish the very strong correlations between, for example, you know, the presence of fragmentation in bishops and the rise of communes, or the fact that it's papal conflict, not secular conflict, that's responsible for fragmentation in both the medieval and the early modern period. I think it's brilliant. Now, the other fascinating point you have is about parliaments and how medieval parliaments copied some of the political systems in the church. Tell us all about that, please. Um, so the church is very useful for parliaments in two ways. One is that the church has always held church synods, which are these sort of large meetings. And the meetings would basically invite representatives from all over Europe in order to attend the church synod, listen to what the pope had to tell them, and then give their assent. And I use the word representatives very guardedly because, of course, the entire church can't come to Rome. And so what the church develops, basically, is a system of what's known as proctorial representation. Um, this is, you know, full and binding representation. So you can have a cathedral, you know, chapter of various canons send a representative to the synod. And at that synod, the representative will assent to, for example, new taxes that the pope uh, requests. And that decision is binding on his community back, um, back home at the, at the cathedral. And this is an enormous innovation because this makes possible full representation in the sense that we understand it, where a representative you know, isn't simply a delegate but has a mandate from his community to bind them to decisions that are being made at the Senate. That comes directly from the church and it makes parliamentary representation possible. 
Um, another aspect of this is the rule that, you know, that which touches all ought to be decided by all. So the church very early on says that if there's going to be taxation, that requires the assent of the entire community. And that, of course, proves enormously helpful subsequently to kings who adopt a similar rule. And, you know, bishops demand this because, of course, bishops are represented at the various parliaments. And bishops at the secular parliaments demand that if we're going to be taxed, we have to use the same rule that the church does. If, you know, th th those of us who will be taxed have to assent to the taxation. And this, of course, is the basis for, you know, tax taxation and representation. And the other point you talk about, uh, so besides a binding collective representation, you talk about majoritarian voting. Yes. And also petitions. Petitions yes. came from the church. Tell us about that. So the, on the majoritarian ruling um, rules part, um, you know, the medieval world basically made its decisions by consensus and unanimity. And that unfortunately meant, for example, in the church's case, um, several disputed papacies. And so what the church basically decides is it'd be so much easier to have the larger and better part decide rather than the entire sort of, you know, council. And that basically introduces supermajority rules, again, from the church into the parliaments. When it comes to petitions, this goes hand in hand with the development of law. And what basically the church does is to say that, you know, look, if there's a local dispute, if, you know, bishops can't agree on something, if the priest, you know, is being tormented by his community or anything like that, they can send a petition to, the, to Rome and that dispute will be adjudicated by the papal court. And of course, that decision is then binding, you know, it goes back and resolves the dispute. And again, kings see this happening and see there are two benefits to this, right? One is that it basically um, you get to adjudicate disputes centrally rather than having to send out you know, judges everywhere. And two, there are fees associated with each one of these petitions, which of course is a huge sort of cash cow for, um, for both the, ro uh, the royal courts and the papal curia. So do you think, I mean, how much of European democracy owes back to the church? You know, I would not go as far as to talk about uh, European democracy. Certainly mm -hmm. the church was vehemently opposed yes. to scientific advances, to the rise of liberalism. It was very much opposed to popular democracy, seeing it as basically an ungodly way of uh, running politics. But I do think that, you know, inadvertently, many of these concepts, whether it's, you know, impartial office and the rule of law, or whether it's, you know, the idea that law should uh, adjudicate disputes rather than simply warfare, or these parliamentary concepts, or even some of these administrative templates, these are all then taken up by secular rulers. Some of them disappear, some of them reappear, but they basically sort of serve as a pool of resources with which states can be constructed. And some of those states you know, are democratic, others are not. But to this day, we use uh, many of the sort of democratic parliamentary concepts, right? You know, the full and binding representation, assent to taxation, majority rules. So they do pop up in useful ways for democracy. But I would never say that, you know, somehow the church is responsible for or even supportive of what we think of as liberal democracy. So why do you think that the church had these systems of political, these internal systems of political representation unlike place unlike other places like for example in the byzantine empire or in the ottoman empire or in china like why is it just because it was this big organization i think it was more than that right because you know it's certainly the orthodox churches are a big organization mm. it was this sort of desire for autonomy for seeking autonomy from secular rule and we have to remember that you know so the grand schism for example in the church occurs in 1054 and that's just two decades before the investiture conflict really takes off Right? And so these are also, if you, I think, part and parcel of the same process of 
the Western Church wanting to assert its power and its autonomy from secular rule and secular control in ways that we don't see any place else. And it had the wherewithal, the sort of you know the far-flung organizational reach, the human capital, and the financial resources with which to pursue that autonomy. Okay, so m- may I try and interpret? So what about we're saying that? The church has spiritual authority, and that enables a degree of financial extraction and exploitation. You know, people give tithe, people give money to the church, the church taxes. And then using that money, the church wants to build greater authority and autonomy, and it can only build that autonomy if it develops these stronger organizational structures. And as it builds those stronger organizational structures with political representation, then later on these secular rulers copy it because they too want that autonomy and authority. Right. So although I wouldn't, you know, I, th- I I don't okay. think it was a stage-like process. Right, no, sure. This is all happening yes, all at once. Yes, yes, right? yes, So, yes. you know, the church is... Co-evolutionary, yes, a- yes, Absolutely, yes. that's yes. right. Okay, I'm with you. So why didn't that happen in the Byzantine Empire? Why don't we see that same kind of innovation? Because there, you know, the church basically seeks secular protection rather than trying to break away from secular protection. After 1054, after the split, the Eastern Church feels embattled. Um, it seeks protection from the Byzantine emperor, and it gets it. And the result is that you know the Eastern churches never sort of developed this kind of autonomy from secular rule. In fact, they actively seek secular protection. There's a fusion of secular and re- and religious authority, um, and as a result, you can see sort of legacies of that to this day. Right? There is no Orthodox church that's fully separate from the state. And w- but what's the reason for that? Like, why did they want? That? And that's the same in the Ottoman Empire. Why did they want that protection? Like, what's the because I felt, I think, you know, they simply felt they couldn't exist autonomously the way that the Western Church had. And they see how difficult, they see the struggles that the Western Church is undergoing and just basically decide that it's, you know, it's less costly and far safer to simply stick with a patriarch who's going to support them anyway. But do you think that's like a cultural reason or is it a financial reason? Like, for example, the greater population density of Western Europe enabled more financial extraction, which enabled the church to be more autonomous. I'm just sort of wondering right. what could have been going on. Well, I think this, you know that sort of divergence occurs so early on that yes. I think it has less to do with organizational capacity than with simple security concerns, right? right? I mean, I think, you know, the the... The Western Church doesn't feel, I mean, the Western Church faces the Holy Roman Empire as its main sort of rival, but is otherwise, you know, fairly secure. Whereas I think the Eastern Church, you know, feels much more embattled and its position is much less secure and it needs protection or it feels it needs protection in ways that the Western Church doesn't. Because of the Ottoman Empire? I think because of the the whole dispute over authority, right? You know, there's a mutual excommunication between, you know, the, the Pope and the leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church or what would become the Eastern Orthodox Church. There's mutual excommunication. There's a lot of uncertainty about who is now wielding spiritual authority and who can be protected. And the Western Church basically keeps a lot of their local resources in ways that the Eastern Church doesn't. Okay, next question. What was the result of borrowing from the church? Like, what was the result of secular rulers strengthening their independent rule? So it's, it's a fascinating story, I think, because what the church does is to provide all these resources that then strengthen the state and the state basically starts the, the state, you know, a term used very loosely. These secular rulers then basically get resentful about the fact that the church continues to want to interfere in their politics and use the resources they've gained, their legal experts, their new universities, their new courts of law, their new parliaments, to then basically push the church away and resist its further incursions. Um, and so, you know, already long before the Reformation in the so late 15th century, you see the assertion of secular authority over churches in Spain, in France 
Protestants and you know, even in the Holy Roman Empire, certainly in England. And this happens before the Reformation. Um, and so I think you know, in a process familiar to anybody who has teenage children, you sort of give all these resources only to have you know, these, uh, the beneficiaries grow resentful and push you away. But can you give me the examples of the how secular rulers tried to gain more autonomy? Like, for example, you give the example in France, how they were not allowing taxes to go outside. Right? That's right. So there are, there are numerous ways of doing this, right? I mean, one is um, legal. So in 1202, the Pope Innocent III issues a bull that basically says that every king is an emperor in his own kingdom. And this is supposed to be used against you know, the assertions by the Holy Roman Empire that, in fact, he's the emperor of all of Europe. But what each of the kings then does is to take a look at this and say, OK, that also means if I'm emperor in my own kingdom, I don't have to obey papal authority either. And that's sort of, you know, the first sort of step. And so what the, they then do is to, for example, have all papal bulls have to go through basically the censorship offices of the royal court. Um, before they're disseminated. They sort of control taxation. There's a huge dispute, for example, between Philip IV and Boniface VIII over taxation and how much taxation should actually go to the Pope. Um, they withhold taxes. They you know, name their own bishops. You know, it's not the case that the investiture conflict settles the issue once and for all. And the Pope sometimes strategically award this, and sometimes rulers basically assert the authority to name their own bishops. And so there's always this huge contestation over what it is that the church can do within secular kingdoms and how kings, on one hand, rely on these templates to strengthen themselves. On the other hand, very much resist church intervention in secular politics. And and, and I thought the other really fascinating point that you made is that as these secular rulers grew stronger, as they collected more of their own taxes, then the, the papacy was running out of money, so they started to heavily tax the papal states. That's right. And they started started selling offices, which in That's turn right. undermined their own moral authority. That's right. So basically in the 15th century, and this is, of course, during the Great Schism, as, or the not-so-Great Schism, um, the Papal Schism, um, the church is desperate for finances. It can't sort of, you know, get as much as they, it had hoped from the various bishoprics and whatnot. And so it resorts to the sale of office. And what's amazing, and this is documented by Philip Gorski and his co-author, is that the template, the, sort of, you know, the documents that allow for the sale of office, those contracts are then copied word for word by secular rulers who go off on their own binge of selling offices as a way of raising funds. And, I, and, and that, in turn, may have sown the seeds of dissent for the Reformation. And oh, absolutely. There's a wide dissent against the sale of indulgences and the sale of offices. These, this, these are seen as corrupt. They're seen as cheapening the church's spiritual authority. And it's not that you know secular rulers don't do it themselves, but they start to view the pope as yet another secular ruler as opposed to a moral authority. I think that's so amazing. So whereas other people might you know, say, oh, the Protestant Reformation triggered all these changes. What you're saying was actually that's endogenous to the weakening of the papacy. That's right. And in fact, you know, I, I'm doing some more research now, and it turns out that the fragmentation of territory is one of the biggest predictors of where the Reformation takes off, right? There's a reason why the Reformation takes off in the Holy Roman Empire and not, you know, in Spain. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, tell me more about that. That's great. So what basically happens, I mean, you can just, you know, at the very beginning, right, Luther has his yes. apocryphal thesis, yes. all that. He's protected by the local prince against Charles V, the emperor, who's very much a Catholic loyalist. And it's the fact that the Holy Roman Empire is so fragmented that you can have Catholic and Protestant princes, you know, living cheek by jowl and protecting their respective religions. 
But that's a huge advantage for the for, uh, for the Protestants because it basically means that there are sort of numerous pockets where they will be protected and when they can survive or the new religion can really take off. So the territorial fragmentation meant that Protestants could possibly get an ally in ways that might not have been possible That's in right. Spain. And they're protected against this overweening, you know, the, the central authority, Charles V, right, is allied with the Pope. And he'd be very happy to get rid of all Protestants. In fact, you know, he definitely makes sort of some steps towards that. But he's unable to do it because so much of the authority is decentralized. Mm-hmm. And so much of it is being held by local princes, many of whom are very happy to protect uh, the Reformation. I have two more questions. What was it about Europe that led to this uh, growing rivalry between church and state? Because if we look at Latin America, by contrast, many of those 20th century authoritarian regimes like Chile, for example, Mm -hmm. or also in the early colonial period or also in the Republican period, there was a very strong church state fusion. And perhaps Mm -hmm. that was because, you know, imperialism was done on the cheap and they tried to maintain authority through the church. So it's not an innate feature of Christianity or the church structure that there should be this rivalry. How do, you see, how do you see your book in relation to Latin America's state formation? So if we take a look at you know, either Latin America or frankly, you know, communist Europe, right? We see churches who in some cases, as in Chile, for example, very much stand on the side of the people against the authoritarians. Like in Poland. As in Poland. And in other cases, basically, you know, are more more than happy to cooperate. But I think there are two critical differences. One is that they do so as separate entities, right? There's never any question of the church and the Communist Party or the church and the junta fusing into one. They're always separate entities, one giving support to the other. Uh So they're already autonomous, right? It already presupposes the autonomy that the earlier rivalry had sought to establish. Okay, okay. And secondly, these all happen in the era of the nation, right? This is basically the 19th century and 20th century when nationalism and the notion of a people Mm. that the church can side with Mm. first arises. So the church now has a choice. It can side with the governing regime or against it. It can side with the people or against it. And that's a very different choice than the the choices that it faced in the medieval period, where there was no concept of the nation. There was, you know, just simply the concept of you know the universal church. Um, and as a result of having this choice, those churches that side with the people against the dictatorial regime, whether in Chile or in Poland, wind up coming out of this with enormous moral authority and gain policy influence subsequently. Yes. Those churches that side with the junta are seen as having betrayed the nation and basically lose much of their power once the regime, the autocratic regime ends. And a classic example would be the church in Spain, like the total loss That's of right. author- moral authority right. after Franco, the pews emptied out, the Absolutely. religious parties lost power, and that has long-run effects, right? That's right. Supporting supporting dictatorial regimes never helps the church. <laughs> well, uh, in Italy, Italy remains very religious, even though the church was strongly allied with Franco, for example. Um, so Italy is an interesting case, right? Because you know, in Italy, the church opposes the unification of Italy. And... It basically sort of, you know, definitely, you know, does a dance with Mussolini, right? And as a result, what happens oh, sorry, is... sorry, I said Franco. You no. correct me. Thank you, Kanye. No, no, no it's, it's one dictator is as good as the next. Um, but the upshot is that, you know, after basically World War II, what happens is that people remain religious, but the church doesn't have much policy influence. It loses, you know, on whether it's a divorce, abortion, its own taxation status. It loses a lot of its preferred policy preferences because it's not seen as representing the nation. It had opposed the unification of Italy. It sided with Mussolini. Its so stance during World War II was never particularly clear. Um, and so it doesn't have the moral authority to then exert the heavy policy influence that the church in Poland does, for example, after the fall of communism. Do you think that's true? For example, if I just take one issue, like... 
A recent poll shows that I think 78% of doctors in Italy wouldn't perform an abortion. Doesn't that show the church having moral authority? You know, it's not clear. In many cases, these are sort of, you know, cons conservatism and religiosity are right, two different right, things. Right, and in sure. the same way, sort of, you know, the moral influence of the church um, on policy and sort of, you know, personal religiosity are two very different things. So there are places, you know, for example, like, um, you know, Poland is another example where you have the two are fused. The church both has still continues to have moral authority and there's personal religiosity. But in Italy, I would argue, you know, those, the two are separated. The church isn't seen as the moral authority that it is in some other places. Question for you. Your book focuses on medieval Europe, but do you think these conflicts between the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy have long-run implications for the state and politics and society today in the 21st century? Well, I think they, they certainly do in that they've established in Western Christianity, at least, that these are two totally separate spheres, right? That the church might have political interests and that the state might have interest in how the church functions within its territory, but the two are separate entities, right? And so the idea of fusing sort of, you know, religion, infusing religion into law, for example, remains highly controversial even when it succeeds mm -hmm. in ways that it doesn't in the Muslim world or even, you know, in the Orthodox world. That said, that said, here in the U.S., there are white Christian nationalists. Absolutely. And going back to Gorski's new book, the, uh, what is it? The Flag and the Cross. Flag, the flag and the, the cross. cross. Right, boom, we've got it. Uh, the Flag and the Cross. And, and, and they have got some really nice data showing that these white Christian nationalists would like nothing more than for their religious ideals to be imposed by an authoritarian oh, regime. Absolutely. And, you know, but so in a previous book, I examined this kind of religious nationalism as well. And it's a very powerful force. It's an extremely powerful force in the United States as well. Um, but even, you know, I, I, would make, I would make a distinction between what people want, what religious zealots want, and what the state will actually implement, right? Mm -hmm. Even in a democracy, the state knows the state. You know, politicians, bureaucrats, et cetera, et cetera, know that that kind of an infusion of religion into the legal structures eventually only basically harms the secular state. Except for all those abortion bans now all over the country. They're incredibly convenient, absolutely. But I think an abortion ban is a long way from implementing natural law, right? Okay. I mean, yeah, right. I think we're a long way from the integralist <laughs> vision of uh, politics in the United States. Well, I will close it there. Honestly, I must recommend this book, Sacred Foundations, The Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State, because I think it's it's amazing. And also, I should say, it's only 185 pages. And you sort of <laughs> unpack this conventional wisdom that war led to state formation. You present this fascinating new theory. And I think another really important point is that many sort of liberal progressive people might shy away from thinking that religion is good and religion is the cause of secular progress, etc., but you present this really fascinating and I think totally compelling explanation of, of why, you know, much of our European history goes back to the church. Thank you so much. No, thank you very much. It's been an absolute treasure. Thank you. Okay. All right.